0: Hello, data storytellers. Today on the show, I have with me Simon Fishman, who is the Vice President of Analytics for Business over at Expedia. Simon, welcome on the show.
1: Very, very pleased to be here. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Excellent. So today we are going to have an exciting conversation about all things data. Uh, Simon, for those people who don't know you yet... um, you had an interesting career. So you've been at Yahoo before you joined Expedia. Would you mind just walking us through the main milestones of your career? And what brought you to an analytics focused role?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So actually, even before my Yahoo days, um, I, I originally started off, you know, out of university, um, I started off down the path of becoming an accountant. Um, it was it was it was a uh, on one hand a great decision on one hand a terrible decision because I absolutely hated it, but one thing it led me to is very early in my career I um, I started I started in a very big company um, selling they were selling kind of a, a, a kind of white goods so fridges freezers uh, televisions things like that in the UK and I wasn't happy I wasn't happy with the role I wasn't happy with the company. Um, and I quickly pivoted and moved across to a startup. Um, it was a startup that did online restaurant reservations. And when I joined there as the management accountant, and I say the management accountant because we were 20 people at the time. Um, I actually started there and I very quickly realized that there was, there was this huge opportunity. Um, so. Um, one of the first things I started looking at was when I looked at our website, when you searched for a restaurant, the results would come back alphabetically. Well, um, it very quickly became obvious that there was a better way to do that. Now, I didn't exactly know what I was doing at the time, but I worked with our developers. Um, I taught myself SQL with a lot of hand holding from, from our devs. Um, And I started to pull the data out and I started to build a predictive conversion funnels and I built a sort algorithm. And I I literally didn't know what what that was at the time. I just built something that I thought made more sense. And it just unlocked this huge world of possibilities for me. I suddenly started seeing that actually by the power of analytics, you could have a material impact on the business and not just in a kind of a one-off sense, but in a sense of you set it and it just continually works for you. And so in the next kind of couple of years, I uh, started doing things like AB testing, uh, conversion um, kind of analytics. We built um, a SEM uh, bidding algorithms and things like that. And I really got into the world of analytics and um, I very quickly realized that that was my passion. And I left the, uh, the accountancy behind me. Um, and, um, that was, I'd say that's really the pivotal story. And then I kind of, in the subsequent 14, 15 years, I've worked across a variety of different analytics, um, kind of areas, whether it's kind of applied analytics in terms of things like pricing or whether it's a uh, pure analytics storytelling and really kind of helping the business to make great decisions. Um, and this is where I am today.
0: Really interesting. So, accounting is actually really close to my heart. So, uh, my parents were accountants as I grew up. So, I, I know everything about it that that, that a layman can know. Um, how was it different for you to engage now in more analytics-focused roles than the accounting? So, I imagine that there were different challenges. So, how how would you compare
1: the two? Well, it's interesting because when you're doing the uh, the accounting side, you are you you are very much a support function to the business, a very crucial and important one. Um, but you are a support function. What you're trying to do in, in kind of the accounting world is make sure you get everything right. You're trying to find areas of opportunity, whether it's in terms of credit, whether it's in terms of kind of leveraging your balance sheet, and then really kind of helping to guide the business. But you're not really doing anything to bring in extra revenue. You're not doing anything uh, in, in that sense. And I think when you contrast that to something like analytics, where if you get things right, you can have a material impact on the business model, the strategic decisions, but also then the day in and day out operations of the business. And it really means it can be such a multifaceted and very, very powerful tool in online organizations.
0: Mm-hmm. And in terms of in terms of the challenges that you face, so what were the first challenges that emerged for you when you started to um, started to engage with analytical solutions? So I imagine with with accounting, uh, at least from, from my experience with my parents, it's usually about different kind of deadlines. You know, being extremely accurate. But then with analytics, it's a little bit more dynamic. So what would you say that are the the main differences in terms of the challenges that emerge?
1: Well, I'd say really the the first one is creativity. Um, People use creative accounting in not the nicest sense, but in analytics, being creative means you find that opportunity, you find something different. You think about the problem uh, or an opportunity in a new and novel way, and then you use data uh, to in order to tell that story uh, prove it out and then maybe launch it whatever it may be um, in an accounting world that's not really what you're there to do you're there to make sure the business runs well you very rarely are you are you actually trying to be creative to find new and novel solutions to business problems um, and so it, it's quite different I'd say from from those respects but probably the the funniest story I've got on this is it's again early in my career, um, I was um, pottering a, a, away, and I was trying to run some analysis, and I can't even remember what it was. But I remember running a SQL query and thinking, "This will take. This will take a few minutes to to run." And I, I kind of hit F5. I got up and went to make a cup of coffee, and as I walked away, uh, I just heard our developers going crazy. Our developers were saying, "Code red! Code red! The site's down! The site's down! What's going on? What's going on?" I, I was like, oh, this happens every week. Uh, you know, We were startup, these things were common. I walked away, made my coffee, came back and I'd expected the kind of the query to be finished by then and it hadn't. And then I suddenly started putting two and two together. And I actually run, ran my query on the live SQL database that powered our business. And effectively I had uh, made a bit of an error in the query and it locked up the entire database, which crashed our website. Um, it's difficult to imagine an accountant doing that kind of thing. Um, So it's, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And we quickly worked, uh, built in certain safeguards and copies of the database and et cetera, et cetera, so that I could, uh, how can I say, make mistakes on my own time rather than the company's. Um, But it was, um, that was uh, quite an amusing story of how uh, you can get something slightly wrong. And then after you worked at that startup, uh, what brought you to Yahoo?
0: I mean, obviously it's a high profile company, uh, especially at the time, I imagine it was super exciting to work there. Uh, what did you do there?
1: Yeah. So um, I moved across to Yahoo because I was really looking for that that next challenge in my career, uh, looking to get my hands on huge amounts of data um, and what you could do with it. And I think, as I was kind of mentioning before, the thing that always excited me was, um when you find a great solution, you can scale it. Um, the startup I was at was, was going through you know, a huge kind of growth kick, uh, but it was still relatively small. Um, Yahoo at the time had the scale, had hundreds of millions of users every single day. And it meant that if you found a novel solution, if you found something interesting, um, you could switch it on and watch it kind of explode. And so I, I went across to to Yahoo and effectively what I was running was a what I'd call kind of an applied analytics. It was um, a part of the organization called Network Yield Management. And what we were trying to do is make sure that across our display advertising business, that we were effectively monetizing our pages, making sure that we were bringing in, uh, setting the prices correctly uh, for for the ad inventory, making sure that we were thinking about how we can sell all of it, um, and really think about were there ways to change the user interaction to improve the user experience um, and and drive that without kind of impacting that monetization or hopefully grow it. So it was really um, a very kind of analytical approach um, to things, but with a very real commercial outcome. Um, very interesting time to be in the company. Um, a lot of great things happened. Um, I, I recently met up with an old uh, colleague, um, and we were trying to think how many CEOs we had during the time. I think I counted seven, but neither of us were particularly sure. So it was a very, very kind of there was a huge amount of change in the time in, in the period, and obviously um, the the story continues to rumble on. They they disappeared, and then, then they're back again, and so um, it will uh, hopefully hopefully they'll find a niche that that can work for them.
0: Mm. And if I think about Yahoo and their business model, obviously that side of the business that you guys work with, now this is one of the biggest industries now globally. Mm. So, um, I imagine the impact that you had on the business, um, is that what, uh, made Expedia interested in you and actually bringing you on board based on the work that you've
1: done there over at Yahoo? Yeah. I mean, it was, I think one of the things I found over the years is when you go, um, when you see a role um, and you start having conversations and the interviews just become very, very easy, um, you find that perfect fit. And I think when I uh, when I moved across to Expedia, there was that great fit at the time. Um, so they were looking for someone at the, at the time when I moved across to Expedia, it was running uh, what we call pricing and competitive intelligence. So uh, again, on, on the pricing side, a slightly different version of this, um, Trying to understand what our competitors were doing uh, across the industry, and then making appropriate data-driven decisions in order to improve the kind of the bottom line. Um, and I, I suppose having that experience both on the soft side of working for a large American company, but based out in Switzerland, um, you know, understanding how to navigate matrixed environments. Um, those kind of th- working with large data, et cetera. It just may- meant that the, the conversations moved quickly. It was a very natural fit. And um, it, was a, it turned out to be a very, very good decision all around, I think.
0: And what attracted you mainly? Obviously, a very different b- business from Yahoo, more traditional. At the same time, uh, even at the time, I think, uh, when you joined, everyone saw the immense potential in becoming more data-driven for a company like Expedia. What attracted you in the challenge?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think the thing about Expedia at the time was um, they were, by by far and away, the kind of the biggest player in in the US market and and had a very substantial share st- uh, share in across kind of Europe and Asia, and, which is still the case today. Um, they in the eight years since I've been in the company, they've been on a massive, massive. Um, a kind of M and A spree, uh, particularly in the first few years, which means that they are actually kind of, you know, quite clearly, depending on which measure, either either kind of um, one or two. Uh, probably, if you're looking at profit, it's definitely two. Uh, but um, they are one of the major players in the online uh, travel uh, market. And I think the thing that was always interesting was the fact that um, you had these different consumer aspects to it were run slightly differently so hotels.com was run in a very different way to expedia.com uh, in time we we brought in home away which is now verbo uh, for vacation rentals which has just been growing like crazy over the last couple of years as people have kind of pivoted away from hotels into into uh, more kind of home kind of uh, vacations um, and it what we had is we had very differentiated offers out there um, it was a very well, and it is a very well-run company. Um, the original CEO when I joined was a guy called uh, Dara Karashahi, uh, who is now CEO of Uber. Um, and I think the, one of the things that massively, massively kind of attracted me is what I saw from the leadership there was um, very, I'd say, uh, the best way to put this is they were very pragmatic um they're very smart leaders um but they were also very empathetic and very human and so what what we saw is that even even back then there was a very data driven culture um it was data driven in a different way uh, to what it is today but back then data driven meant you would go into a meeting and maybe the senior executives would have a very clear viewpoint you could present data present the story present the facts and You'd come out of the meeting with a completely different conclusion. They would always be open. They would always be willing to listen, even if it was their idea, even if it was their baby that they had, you know, thought that this was the way to go. Everyone was really data-driven and willing to listen. And today, there's a slightly different culture, but the way we're data-driven today is is really in terms of um, using a kind of data to make. Minute business decisions in real time. Mm-hmm. And so, a, an example would be um, if you've ever gone on to a, what we call a meta search engine, so someone like TripAdvisor or Trivago, someone like that, um, and you look at hotel prices, you'll see that there's a wide variety of prices from a lot of different people. Well, back when I started, we used to get that information in and we would bring it in, we would do an ETL, we'd spend, you know, hours processing it, and maybe after 36 hours, we'd be able to have the data to look at. Um, What that meant was, by the time the data was available to people, it was stale, it was old. And actually, in a lot of cases, prices had changed. Um, Today, what we've done is we've developed a process, which means that we can take a price off of anything. Whether it's via an API, whether it's off of a screen scrape, whatever it may be, we can bring it through into the Expedia systems, um, make decisions on it, um, and action those decisions within about 60 seconds end to end. So it's basically real-time decision-making. And what that means is you can, you can set up your business in a very different style. Um, there's a lot more... Um, I'd say, trust in the algorithms and trust in the processes, uh, as opposed to, hey, I've done this piece of analysis that's taken me two weeks to do, and here's the story. Um, we're data-driven in just that very different way nowadays.
0: Mm. You mentioned that trust, and this just keeps coming up whenever we talk about data, and um, it is in a way, my, so it might be surprising to some people because we're talking about data. Isn't it all about the fleshy algorithms and the technology? Um, how, how, how is it possible that we always end up talking about trust and humility and uh, empathy, well, well, the, the more human side of data? But then uh, with, with you guys creating that trust, I imagine that there was an organizational change that took place, like a change of perspective, um, what role did you play in bringing that
1: transformation about? Yeah, so it's it's interesting because the way you'd think about algorithms is they should be perfect, but algorithms aren't. Algorithms are created by people, and what that means is uh, anyone right, you know, building an algorithm, doing data science, science puts in effectively their own um, biases into it. Um, sometimes that may be from the fact that they assume the data is perfect, but actually it may be very noisy. Uh, sometimes it may be that the selection of the um, uh, of the key elements is biased or ignorant. Um, sometimes it may just be because uh, they've been ordered from above to do a certain style of kind of action or, or to lead to a certain outcome. And so algorithms are only as good as what you put into them and the, and the work you put on them. And so, what we needed to do over many years is demonstrate um, demonstrate the business outcomes. And the way you know, one of the ways that we found was very, very successful is um, you don't. What you don't want to do. Let's start with what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't um, kick off by saying, "Okay, we're going to build a new system. It's going to take us two years to build, and then at the end, it's going to be perfect." Because probably when you start those kind of things, a you probably don't even know what you want to build. Secondly, um, you, kind of the business leaders may not have that confidence and that trust, as you say. So actually, you you take more of a MVP approach, the minimum viable pro- uh, product, and you build a small slice of these kind of data products with the endpoints, and you test and you show the business value, and you show that you are. Delivering and laddering up, and some of the tests will work and show yes, we've delivered that five percent, the ten percent here, whatever it may be. Some of the tests may not work, and the ones that don't work are just as valuable because they tell you what you shouldn't be doing. They give you insight of well, why hasn't this worked? Is, has it not worked because we're not measuring it correctly? Has it not worked because we, you know, our assumptions are off? Has it not worked because our data's bad? We we're not granular enough in our approach. There's lots of reasons why things don't work, and they can all help you to make that better end product. And you work through that over time, and people then get confidence in, in effectively in in the system. And the system is the people, is the processes, is the reporting, it's the, the storytelling on top of what's happening, why, and what we can do about it, and how we can continually improve. And and that over time, like anything in life. Any personal relationship you have, trust get, gets built up over time. Um, I always like to use the analogy of um, an old school friend. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure, Laszlo, that you've got some old school friends—people who, literally, you could call up at 2 a.m. and say, "I need, I need you to do something for me," and they would just say, "Where do I need to go?" They wouldn't ask why. That's not the point. They would just drop everything, get up in the middle of the night and help you. And the reason I go for old school friends is these aren't acquaintances. These aren't people you've known for a year or so. Um, These are people who you've built up that trust with such that when you make that call, they're going to answer it and they're going to act. And within a business context, you think about that and you think about how do you build up that trust such that You have proven as the data leader, um, time and time again, that what I have said has been well thought through, it's been sense checked, it makes sense and it's it's doing the right thing for the business. Yes, always open to take any feedback, any changes, etc. But what I'm doing is in the best interest. And when I say this is the right way forward, there's very little reason for the person to distrust it. And it means uh, when you say, actually, what I really need is I need another six engineers for a few months just to help me finish this bit off. It's like the old school friend. They just say, sure, of course, because they know you're going to deliver because they've seen it time and time again. And that that's the way I talk about trust in a business context.
0: Mm, I feel this is very relevant because um actually just yesterday, I had a similar call with a high school friend of mine. So it, <laughs> yeah, yes, it's actually uh, quite timely. Now, you said uh, quite a few interesting things there. I see different stages. So first you say that it's important to create the MVP. And then you basically validate that through testing. And then you can use that to tell the story, to leverage your results, to build that trust with that strategic vision in mind. So uh, can we just spend a, uh, uh, a little bit of time on each of those? You have limited resources as a data leader, both in, times, uh, b- both in time and resources. How do you choose the right projects? What kind of groundwork do you do before you actually invest into something?
1: So there's, there's, there's different ways to, to uh, kind of attack this, but generally the way I like to think about it is you need to have a clear vision. Um, the vision is where do you want to be in two, three, five years from now? What do we want to have achieved? And that vision may be slightly hazy. It may not be fully defined, um, but you need to know kind of where you're going. Now, then the question is, what are you going to build that is going to help you achieve that vision? So we often have short-term opportunities which may deliver a bit of money they may do something quite cool but they may not actually ladder up to that vision and the first kind of thing is, is 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 does it align with what we want to do and so we there's a lot of things that are not bad ideas but actually not where we want to focus on um the next thing is obviously there's a um you can think about the kind of the analytics and the modeling behind making these decisions, these investment cases. And we, again, um, any kind of what if analysis, any kind of uh, modeling you can do, it's, it's only as good as the assumptions you put into it. The more hard data points you've got for your assumptions, the more confident you can be in the outcome. Um, as in, we have run a test In this way, we have seen a 5% uplift. Um, We believe it is applicable for what we want to do. Great. Um, Very often you don't have those data points. Very often it's like, well, we think that this should deliver about a 10% uplift. And then you end up with a kind of a piece of string thing in the air. And this is where um, I'd say it's really the role of the senior leaders to help validate and vet it and they over just over the years there becomes an innate sense of what we can expect in different circumstances um my my background before even being an accountant i uh, studied economics actually and one of the things that got me through uh, my economics degree was going back to first principles you always start off with in our case, in this situation, an individual user on a website, how do they react in a certain way? How could they react? How strong do you think that reaction is going to be in certain different cohorts? And you start saying, do you think it'd be reasonable to expect such a reaction? And at that point, you can start building up, well, what, you know, like almost gut feel. But based on that experience, based on the kind of hist- lots and lots of historical data points, what do we really think is possible here? And you tend to, over time, you tend to have a good sense of uh, what is possible, what is not. Um, and you s- then start to be able to say, well, what do we need to believe for project A to be better than project B? And sometimes you can really believe it. And sometimes you look at it and you just think, ah, I just don't believe that um and therefore you don't choose it but again it's as much as possible using data using real data points uh, to do that modeling but making sure that there's that human overlay and that that's real sense check on top of it
0: mm-hmm. so let's say you already have some of these successful projects running and you have that strategic vision of what you want to achieve of course um there will be a lot of people involved in this at different levels of the organization. Um, You mentioned before that it's useful to think about what not to do. So what do you think are the common pitfalls for data leaders in these cases? You have some uh, solid projects going, solid solutions in place. Uh, What are the common pitfalls from your experience in terms of presenting this to the right people at the right time, the right way?
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And so for me this comes back to this idea the vision um you need to have this long term vision but uh the 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 expression uh, i like to use is y- you need to deliver for today plan for tomorrow deliver for today um you need to show the business that there's always value there I've seen these pitfalls before of data leaders coming in with these ambitious plans to build out data marts or data layers, or you know we're going to build a streaming data service platform, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you end up having these conversations, and kind of you, you you peel back the onion a little bit, and you say, so what? what? What are you going to do with this? What's the point? What's the outcome? And in some, if you are able to articulate what is the outcome, what is the value you can drive, then people in the business can get excited. If it's just, look, this is gonna enable us to really automate things and go faster, you're gonna have a really, really tough time in getting this through. If you are able to say, look, this is gonna help us automate things and really go faster. And actually we've identified these three key projects uh, that are going to be enabled by this, uh, after week six, uh, you you know, dot, dot, dot. And then you can start saying, Okay, this is what we're this is the prize we're going after. And this is what it means. Um, The more you can articulate that clear business value and ladder into the longer term vision and strategy, the more chance you've got of of actually getting that longer term through. So, again, um, you pointed out so many important things there.
0: So Basically, when you are trying to identify the right metrics that people will actually be interested in, because what we've seen over the years is that you guys are so great at conceptualizing the solutions, understanding the nuances of the algorithm, seeing the technological connections. But a lot of times it just comes part and parcel to the profession that you can kind of lose sight of what people are actually interested in, what they are emotionally driven by. What has your method been over the years of making sure that you don't lose track of what the key stakeholders actually genuinely, authentically care about?
1: Yeah, no. So it's it's really interesting because you can think about the whole different kind of range of stakeholders. Some of them are completely bought in, see you as a key business partner, want to leverage you, know how to leverage you. Some people are skeptics. It's like, ah, you got, I've been around for so long. What are you going to tell me with your data? And some of them are overly enthusiastic. You know, AI is going to solve everything and it's going to be here by Tuesday. Um, and they, they truly believe that and they're, they're not understanding of just how complex some of these things will be. Um, the way I've tended to approach it is what you kind of want to do is you want to imagine that you are the business leader. Um, what are their key goals, objectives? Um, What is gonna get them fired? What is gonna get them promoted? You need to understand each person and understand their motivation. Um, And so, and and I'm using extremes fired and promoted as a kind of, as a a joke, but I, I wanna know what really they care about. And at that point you can start to think, okay, well, how can we, as the data organization, as the analytics organization, whatever it may be, how can we uh, support them? And in some cases, it may just be super clear that they don't have the right information to tell the CEO because they don't have the right access to data, dashboards, things like that. In some cases, it may be much more based around they need help automating processes, in which case, let's bring in some, uh, you know, some great data scientists with natural uh, language processing uh, abilities and, you know, and, and a copy of Python, and and we can actually get them to automate things. Um, in some cases, it may be just about showing them a slightly different view and helping them to make strategic uh, business decisions. But again, always going back to, what what do they care about? Um, and how can we help to deliver that over time?
0: Hmm. And it, it's so funny because, um... I remember one of, uh, one of the other interviewees uh, mentioned this kind of uh, a provocative statement that no one actually cares about your data. Even, even those people who seem to be super excited about, at the end of the day, what they care about is not data or your solution. And everyone, this is just a reality of human nature. And instead of kind of trying to deny it, disregard it, I think embracing it, at least from what we've seen from from the successful leaders, embracing it is the right way. And what you mentioned about the firing and the promotion, it's perfect. I've heard this said before the personal heaven and hell of the individual is what will help you to conceptualize what their true priorities are. And uh, firing and promotion are kind of these hard metrics that you can use, which can be very helpful. When you try to occupy that perspective when you try to put yourself in their shoes. How much emphasis do you put on, let's say, doing some research in the business itself on your own, kind of thinking about this in an intentional way? And how much emphasis do you put on sitting down with them and having conversation and asking them
1: questions? I mean, it's an absolute combination of those two. Mm -hmm. You've really hit the nail on the head because, um, again, if you think about these business leaders, different levels of, um, I'd say, data maturity, data, data understanding. Uh, Some of them don't know what they don't know, right? They may have very significant blind spots in terms of what can be done and how things, how we can help them. So in those cases, actually having a deep understanding of their business and what the problems are from the ground up is incredibly important um in in our company we um we have a, a kind of um the way the way we work is we have relationships with hotels across the world and in order to manage those hotels we have what we call market managers and these guys are in every place where you can think of with hotels thousands of people around the world and a lot of the time they are there trying to fix relatively basic problems with hotels as in, the hotel hasn't uh, loaded the right kind of photo. Uh, we don't have the best rate today. Things like that. Um, and until you, as a, or until I, as a data business, you know, data analytics leader, had sat down with them on a day's worth of calls and seen how exhausting it was. Um, it, until that had happened, it wasn't clear what kind of help they needed. And no one had articulated that to me and no one was going to articulate that to me. But until I saw their daily grind, I couldn't think about um, what kind of data solutions could actually help with that. Um, And uh, over the last eight years, I mean, what the tools they have today compared to when I joined the company are like night and day. And I I take very little credit for that because that that wasn't uh, in, in my watch, but you can see how data has enabled uh, that in a very, very material sense. Um, and you can only really get that understanding from from sitting there in the front line. When mm-hmm. you speak to the senior vice president in charge of that, their priorities are going to be very, very different. They're probably not going to be thinking about that in such a way. They're going to be thinking much more about the strategic questions.
0: Mm. So when you're driving this change, um, and now you had uh, I imagine a lot to reflect on when you look back at your career. When you're driving that change, what I'm getting here is a common pattern where you basically have more passive stances, more passive postures when you listen, when you sit with them and you try to understand them and then get invested in the right initiatives and really uh, get some success going. That's great. Now, if you want to drag towards your strategic vision, I imagine that you would need to leverage these successes. And this is where we might be able to talk a little bit more about the storytelling aspect. Again, storytelling is kind of like a nice buzzword. Uh, I always want to be careful to not do storytelling and talk about storytelling for its own sake. Right? We talk about storytelling so that we can actually help you guys achieve what you want to happen in the business. So you're trying to drive change. You're trying to get closer to your strategic vision. You've already had some successes. Um, how important do you think storytelling is to make sure that you can present this to the right people the right way has yeah. been for you? And what do you think are the common pitfalls with this?
1: Yeah, yeah no, so, I, absolutely. I, I spoke about building trust. And building trust generally, in a lot of cases, uh, can be about actually just supporting, for example, the business leaders' initiatives. But... One of the big areas we focus on is what we call our proactive initiatives. So these are things that we come up with, um, we drive. And um, they can start from very you know data heavy, or they can start from more just kind of general business ideas that we have and then build out. Now, in order to pitch them, in order to get buy-in across the business, yes, it, this is all about storytelling. Um, we've seen something that we think is important, whether it's a Pattern, a trend, whether it's a new business opportunity, how do we capture the imagination and tell that story in a way that people are going to understand, uh, that people are going to get excited about? Um, and I suppose one of the one of the things I've seen over the years is the simplest some some of the simplest ideas, if you tell them well, uh, can really capture imagination um, and really just. Um, just unlock huge huge value for the business and so the way we kind of almost think about this is is again it's when you tell a story you think about who the audience is you think about what points you're trying to make and you think about what you need to say and what you don't need to say how you prepare for the questions that come in um, and how you adapt that story across different parts of the business so you can almost think of the the elevator pitch, like how can you capture someone's interest and imagination in just 30 seconds? You can think about the you know the the high level business pitch in five, ten minutes. Um, how do you provide enough detail, enough supporting facts to not just make the emotional um, connection, but also to to actually back it up with the rationale uh, behind it. Um, And then there's the inevitable one of, okay, well, once you've done all of that, yeah, you've got the business leaders um, kind of excited, then come finance. And finance are going to pick and poke and question. And that's really, you know in in our company, that's their job. And how do you make sure you've got enough of the backup and you've got enough of the detail to really bring that story over the line? Um, It's almost like if you think about um, telling the story of Cinderella, you can tell a very, very quick version of Cinderella. Uh, she was, uh, you know, uh, abused at home. She had the opportunity f- via magic to go to the this ball. She went there. She was transformed. She lost a glass slipper, and uh, the prince came looking for her because he had fallen in love. Found Cinderella because her shoe fit. Uh, the shoe fit her foot. That's the Cinderella story in in twenty seconds. Um, you can then go on to the more detailed version. When you get to the end. You know, and, and I had this from my, um, from my eight-year-old daughter uh, a few, few weeks ago. She said, I don't understand this. If it was a magic slipper and it fit her perfectly, why did it fall off? Um, and it was a good question. Why did it fall off? And if it was so big that it'd fall off, why did it not fit anyone else in the whole kingdom? And you can start to think about, well, how would you build your story to be waterproof? So so it holds water. So it's like it's absolutely robust uh, because in any story, you can maybe get that first bit, but you need to push it over the line. And you do that in the analytics world. You do that by making sure that not only are you capturing people's imagination, but you've actually put the hard work in and you've thought things through properly. You've built up your models and yeah, you may not have the final solution. Uh, but you, you've you've actually got something that is going to going to make sense all the way through. Mm. And
0: now, having leveraged also this part of the more proactive stance when it comes to um, uh, data transformation, uh, what are you guys working on right now? What are some of the things that you are most excited about in terms of opportunities in the business at Expedia?
1: Yeah, so. Um, The first one, which is, um, I'll maybe get some smiles from people uh, in the data world who are listening to this, but so we've just gone through a a kind of a reorganization uh, as a business um, and we've brought together multiple different parts of the organization. We've split some others up, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, not an unfamiliar story for big companies. Um, One of the things that we're working on actually quite a lot at the moment is, Um, what are the right KPIs we should be looking at as a business? Um, And very simple stuff. Um, But actually there's a certain art form to getting the right KPIs. A good KPI, in my humble opinion, should be something that anyone can look at. And if it's up, if it's meant to go in that direction, they know it's good. If it goes down, they know it's bad. Very, very simple. the problem with very large and complex businesses is very often you get KPIs that are uh, amalgams of multiple other drivers. So actually one KPI hides four or five different drivers. And you can end up in a situation where the KPI goes up and everyone's like, oh, that's good, right? And you end up saying, well, actually three of the f- four drivers went down, one went up, there was mixed shift underneath. And so it's kind of... When you've got a KPI that does that, you've got a bad KPI because it's not helping the business leaders to be able to actually understand what they need to think about. And so actually what, what this process means is you actually need to think about what are the key drivers of the different parts of your business in different ways. What are the key funnels, whether it's a funnel for a kind of new partner or new user acquisition, whether it's a conversion funnel on your website, you need to think about almost where those breakpoints points are. Along the way, where things can go well, can go badly, uh, you know, um, whatever it may be, um, and really kind of distill out where are the places that the top top kind of leaders need to not just uh, understand but track and kind of get those warning signs when things are not going well. Mm. Obviously, mm. as you go further down the organisation, the level of the detail that the Kind of the kind of the individual business leaders would have uh keeps on increasing as they get kind of much more detailed but obviously you know the ceo is not going to see that level of detail nor should they
0: hmm. and this also connects into the trust question and i don't know if you've ever thought about that but i would be interested in hearing your take so when you think about that vision for the data function and the role of data within the business what kind of perception of data would you like to achieve? Because a lot of times, this is what, what we find, is that uh, the data leader has a certain perspective and the data team has a certain perspective of what data is, how it should be, how the business should approach data, and then the business has a completely disconnected uh, uh, perspective from that. So uh, what would you actually like to achieve for the business to think about data in what way? And this probably ties into the data-drivenness question as well. What would you like that to be? you know, let's say in, in the next three to five years? How would you like the business to see data in their day-to-day work?
1: Yeah, I, I, think, I think there's probably two aspects to this. Uh, one aspect is, you know, the general business performance, when you're looking back at historical what's happened and why, um, the assumption from business leaders is that the data is just correct and it's available. So we have all of the data we could possibly need. It's being stored, it's clean, it's correct. And that when a question comes in, it people don't sit there scratching their heads thinking, uh, I, I don't think we have this. It's just a question of saying, okay, let me pull this together uh, and we can answer the question. Um, so I think that for me is, is hygiene level and it's not always the case, far from it in a lot of companies, a lot of data is not captured. Uh, in, in a lot of companies, a lot of data is not captured consistently or cleanly in others, and in some places um, there just may not be the instrumentation there even online companies now that that 's your hygiene level now when we think about okay over the next three to five years um, I spoke earlier in this uh, in this conversation about making real time decisions, and if you think about um, an experience of a consumer, a consumer goes on to Expedia.com. The first thing we need to think about is well, what do we know about this person? Uh, what can we infer about this person and how therefore can we tailor the experience that they get on the website um, to mean that we are actually delivering a superior service for this individual? And that may be be based upon past searches, past trips they've taken, everything like that, um, which is, I'd say, um, you know, you can start to infer a lot. It may be based upon cohort analysis. It may be based upon uh, predictive modeling. Um, And you can then think about it, well, is it kind of the items you put on the shelf? Uh, so to speak, is in which hotels are we recommending, which flights, et cetera, et cetera. Is it a case of even just the look and feel of the website? Mm. Um, this person has a flight leaving in two days. What do you want to show when they go onto Expedia.com compared to someone who has no active bookings on uh, on their um, on their profile? So you can you can think about that. And that's where you start to say, actually, that's a very different paradigm. That's not you know your uh, hygiene level of just make sure we've got the data so we can understand what's happened but that's how do you use data in real time to i'd say to really create a fantastically personalized experience for individuals for the same thing can be said on our supplier side when our suppliers log into our business to business portals how do we make sure that their experience is tailored uh, is correct um all of those kind of things, and and that for me is is a very different kind of expectation in terms of what we need to uh, do, what we need to deliver on, and and how we can help to drive the business forward.
0: Fantastic, Simon. This has been a lot of fun, very educational as as well. Unfortunately, I th- our time is up. I mean, I guess we could talk about this for another hour, but um, just as a Personal word of advice for aspiring data leaders from your perspective, looking back at your career, now going into this new decade, which is promising to be if the hype lifts up to the expectation, it's promising to be the decade of data as well. Um, What would you recommend for people who would like to be successful in this field moving forward?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's interesting, because I I started off in analytics uh, in the early 2000s. And my tools back then were Excel and SQL, um, and that was quite advanced. I'd say even using SQL back then was, was a bit crazy. Um, now, if you think about the tools that people have, uh, my expectation when I, you know, when I bring in a new graduate into my team, is that they have proficiency in SQL, that they know how to use Python, um, that these things are fairly kind of standard. Now, I think the advice I'd give is. You absolutely need technical skills. You absolutely need to master how to use the, those kind of tools, uh, how to you know how to use big data, how to you know use the multitude of kind of different syntaxes we have out there. Um, super important, but that is not everything. Um, one of the most important things is if you really want to kind of supercharge your career, is to think about really how do you have a business impact and how do you start to bridge that gap between data and analytics, data science, whatever it may be, and actual business leaders, Um, more kind of the commercial side. And that's where storytelling is a massively important piece of it. I would say it's also kind of commercial awareness, understanding what drives our business, what, what is going to be important and really trying to join those dots. Um, and so what I would kind of say is, um, you know, being technically adept, isn't going to be a differentiator. It's no longer a differentiator. Most people that we hire these days into our functions will have something like a masters in data science um and it's no longer a differentiator. But what is what does really matter is the ability to engage, excite and bring people along on that journey um and and bridge that gap. So that would be my biggest piece of advice. Um and that w- I'd say is is the thing that when I think about senior analytics leaders, that's what I'm really looking for.
0: Fantastic. Simon It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your insights. We hope to hear more from you in the future as well. And um, thank you very much and have a great day. And data storytellers, until next time.